Jonas Dupuy. Welcome to another episode of the Bonsai Wire podcast. Today, I'll be speaking with co-host John. Hey, John. Hey. Hey, how's it going? Good. What have you been up to lately? Oh, it's uh, it's been a wild it's been a wild run here the last couple of weeks. We we've had some really early, colder uh, winter weather. Uh, I don't know. I don't think last year it froze until after Thanksgiving. We've already had three or four freezes. Wow, uh, been really good ones because uh, it's only been twenty eight, twenty nine, uh, which is kind of nice. Get the trees, get their antifreeze system set up, and n- nothing. You know, I think last year we had a like a twenty three was our first one in in mid December or something crazy like that. It was like kind of freak out, you know. But so it's kind of nice to get that. Um, but yeah, this is always a weird time. Uh, falls a weird time around the yard. I was talking to someone that's not. Uh, they don't know anything about bonsai. They were asking me what I was doing and said, well, it's kind of embarrassing because I spent my entire day uh, snipping leaves off of trees. <laughs> like <laughs> such a weird, <laughs> such a weird thing. You know, it's like how many people think about like getting a pair of scissors and cutting 10,000 leaves off of trees. But that's what I've been doing pretty much the last couple of days is just keeping the yard looking nice by cutting leaves off and then doing, doing fall pruning on deciduous. So is everything pretty much, uh, has it all turned color by now? Yeah, it's all turned color and probably half to two thirds of the deciduous have dropped leaves or, or been taken off. What do the shoju by look like this time of year? You know, they have mostly lost. They, they kind of start losing late, um, late summer, early fall. They start kind of yellowing and shedding. And then like the older ones right now are almost all bare and the younger ones are pretty full still, but they, they kind of like lose through the winter here. Um, and they'll eventually like drop everything by mid to late November, but we still have a week or two on some of them, but then they flower like crazy here. I don't know what yours do, but they flower uh, like crazy. Yeah. I mean, they kind of flower all the time, but here they're in full flower, which is kind of fun. Um, if we keep the slugs off of them, Oh yeah, slugs, slugs love, love the, the flowers. flowers. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, they eat the buds. They yeah, they eat holes in the buds. It's wacko. Yeah, so if we can keep the if we can keep the slugs off of them, they look pretty great because they got some nice red flowers and and yeah, it's the same thing in my garden that the older trees don't look as good, but the younger trees are just putting on new growth and looking great. Yeah, yeah, a lot of extension and uh, yeah, it looks good. Neat. Have you uh, been out of town lately or have you just been chained to the scissor pulling off leaves? Uh, mostly here. Uh did take a day off to go visit some friends in eastern Washington. And then uh, Michael and I actually got away for a, a collecting trip. We hadn't gone up and collected. He hadn't been up in a while. And there's a place in Washington he likes to go to uh, in the one of the flows off of Mount Adams. Huh. And so we went up there to the flows. It was pouring rain, which is a little unfortunate, but... Uh, we, you know, we suited up and we're mostly prepared. I think, um, drove up there. I think it took us, uh, four backtrackings to actually find the place. We had to like drive into where we had cell range and we took a, we took a wrong turn three times, but we ultimately got there and, uh, <laughs> it's a bunch of fun. And it was actually election day, which is kind of nice. Like he wanted to go out and get out of town for election day. Cause we would just be doom scrolling, you know? So that was a, he kept apologizing for getting lost. I'm like, look, I'd rather be here than sitting in front of my computer worrying about the world, you know? <laughs> Even if nice. I'm just wandering lost in the woods, you know, I'd rather be here. Uh, so, yeah, we got up there. We were mostly looking for vine maples. Um, and we, we traipsed around in three or four different places. I don't know if you've ever been into any uh, lava flow. I haven't. Uh, 
areas, but it's, it's kind of bizarre. The one, the one up here in Washington is, is pretty old. So there's trees growing in it pretty well. Like there's a good amount of soil. It's mostly sand kind of soil, but we've got a couple of lava flows that are in central Oregon that are, they just look like the surface of the moon. There's nothing growing in them, not even ground covers really. That's, but this one's old enough that's got some pretty good sized trees in it and everything's stunted because of it's, it's so weird, such big lava rocks, you know, it just doesn't have the right soil and nutrient, whatever. But, um, but it's, it's super difficult to walk around in because it's real jagged uh, rocks, you know, real, real craggy, real sharp. And so you're always tripping and cutting your hand because you fall and, you know, that kind of stuff. And then there's these big crevasses where the, I think when it was forming, it was like there were lava flows and then it hardened and then it left a tunnel and then the tunnel collapsed. And so there's these big crevasses. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like hunting for trees on the surface of the moon. Um, And it's a little bit hit and miss what what you can find up there. There were a lot of subalpines up there, firs and true firs and, uh, we were mostly looking for maples because they grow pretty gnarly up there, our native uh, vine maple. So we looked all day and it was, you know, I, we go, I go mushroom hunting a lot and I tell people it's, you know, I don't call it mushroom collecting. I call it mushroom hunting because you just never know what you're going to find. You know, you, you can't go up there expecting anything. Yeah. And just because there was something last year doesn't mean it'll be there exactly, this year. Exactly. Exactly. And so we went out there, we probably stopped at three or four different places and we were at lower elevation and didn't find anything. We went higher elevation and all of a sudden we weren't in, there were no vine maples. So we went a little lower in elevation. And I think Michael said something like, I've got five more minutes in me. It was like two thirty, and we were both soaked to the bone by then. We both <laughs> brought rain jackets and rain, total rain suits, but it didn't help. We were totally oh. drenched. And so, okay, good. Five more minutes. Okay. I'm going to go over this ridge. You go over that ridge. And then the five minutes was up and I start calling for him. I can't find him. I get up on the top of the ridge and I'm yelling and finally he ducks his head over a couple of ridges over and he said, I found something. <laughs> so oh of gosh, run over there. And it was probably two forty-five at that point. And it was a beautiful vine maple that had, I don't know, it probably had had six or seven previous lives where it just some, like some old burl and then uh, you could see a dead trunk and then another trunk had grown, but it was, hmm. it was super nice, but it was kind of in this really tight rock formation. So we start, digging and chipping and clawing and prying. And uh, I don't know, at some point right at the end, I was the, the crevasses were kind of in a parallel and it was like parallel lines that, that you could put your foot down into. So I had both of my feet down in this crack up to my knees that I could, I could barely get my feet down into. And then they wedged in there, you know, so I've got one foot in front of the other in this crack and I'm prying on the tree and the pry bar slips out and I fall backwards down the hill. And, but I'm kind of wedged in this crack at the same time, you know? (laughs) Oh gosh. So I land, I land upside down because I was on a cliff and I land upside down with my feet are the only thing holding me in, but I landed on a, like a really sharp lava rock right in my tailbone. And I think I broke my tailbone. (laughs) Oh, ouch. But then when it all happened, two big rocks fell down the crevasse and on my feet. So I'm being wedged in. <laughs> so you do get insult on top of injury. Right, exactly. I'm totally wedged in. The only thing holding me 
from falling off the, the this face of this cliff is is that my feet are in here and then two big rocks are on there and then I've got this you know thing digging into the back of my <laughs> so Michael's trying to scramble to get me out of there you know trying to pull me up but he can't pull me up because my feet are wedged in so then he's trying to get my feet I'm trying to help myself but I can't really like move because oh gosh so anyway, I took a few minutes to break and then uh, and then we ultimately got it out of there it took us three hours which I don't think. I think Michael said that's the longest you've ever worked on a tree, but uh, really, it took, us, wow. it took us three hours to dig that thing out of there. But do vine maples do pretty well when they uh, come out? Yeah, it had a ton of it had it had probably three or four three inch um, uh, big roots, big taproot type roots that we uh-huh. had to sever. But it also just had a ton of fine fiber roots, so Ooh. we were able to save it. And he he's had really good success. They tend to uh, root back pretty easily. So I think that was the, I think that was the one reason he was willing to, to collect it is it, it was obvious that it had a lot of really fine rooting right there on the surface. Um, just in the leaf litter. And sometimes it's hard to tell, like, is that rooting, is that ferns and stuff growing around, but this was growing kind of in a little pocket all by itself. So it was obvious that that was all well, now, as long as your body can repair as well as the roots can repair, then I know. Yeah. So I, got a, I got a bum knee and then kind of walking around like <laughs> <laughs> all I wanted to do the next day was sit, but you know, I can't sit because I got yeah, this yeah. <laughs> broken tailbone or at least bruised tailbone. I don't know. Yeah. Tailbone injuries are very uncomfortable. That is yeah, no fun. Right. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Gee, glad you got out of town. I guess uh, you'll be, st- do you do many more collecting later in the season or is that about it? Yeah, we're going to try to go back up one more time and just kind of look around. There's uh, this this lava flow is pretty big, so uh, it's got it's got some different elevation areas. There's some hemlock in an area I'd like to go look at, and so we'll probably try to get up again. It's it's also high mushroom season in that area too, so we were digging for digging around for mushrooms as well. Just kind of Ooh, which mushrooms mind. this time of year? Uh, we here we get chanterelles uh, oh. is the easiest one for everybody, but then up there we found uh, matsutake. Really, which are the really popular yeah. one in Japan? Uh, for a while, they were they were going, they were being exported to Japan for a lot of money. I'm not sure what, but they're really fun. I don't know if you've ever had them, but I love them. Yeah, uh, yeah, they have a they the books say they have a smell between a, a red hot and a dirty sock. So <laughs> we got this crazy smell. So they're really easy to tell what they are because uh, they kind of look like other just nondescript white mushrooms, but. It's undeniable when you smell it what it is. So there's a fun dish we make with it where we uh, we actually put it in the rice cooker with the rice, and so you have oh, matsutake yeah. rice, and it's just a super rich umami filled, wonderful taste. It's really good stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. It, it's, it really is red hot cinnamon something going on in there. <laughs> uh, they're fun. Fun mushrooms. Well, I'm gonna have to make sure uh, we get some mushrooms next time I come to visit. That sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah. We have a ton of uh, chanterelles, so that's that's the one everybody can recognize, and they yep. grow really easily in the in the Doug Fir forest. So yeah, I remember uh, flying through Portland in spring, and there's a there was a flower market in the Portland airport, just filled with all these fresh mushrooms, and I um, mm. yeah, were it an option, I would have bought a lot of <clears throat> mushrooms that day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yum. Well, back to the garden. Um, so when you're pulling these leaves, do you ever strip the leaves or do you literally just cut leaf after leaf after leaf all day long? Yeah, it kind of depends on the species. Uh, I 
the we had this crazy cold snap and then we went uh this rainstorm that michael and i were collecting in and then the next day i was not feeling good so i just sat around and it's kind of like the we they kind of all turned at the same time and then they started falling so by the time i got out there i was i was literally just grabbing tufts of leaves off of the trees oh, okay. um, because they had already like gone from hi it's late summer oh now it's winter oh, you know <laughs> So we had like one and a half days of really beautiful red leaves in the yard and then they're all falling on the ground anyway. So, so generally, yeah, we'll like strip the leaves backwards on some trees and we can pull forwards on other trees and then some things we have to cut. So it just kind of depends, but for the most part, um, everything was just falling off. The ginkgos were just falling off in my hand and the oh, maples cool. were just falling off in my hand and the tridents I did have to strip, but we, we could pull those off pretty easily pulling forward. Yeah, those you can strip about as easy as anything, and the buds tend to be tough. Um, yeah. Soju bite can be rough because, A, the leaves aren't always turned, and there's uh, thorns in there. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you always go out of your way to fully defoliate the soju You know, when we're pruning, especially uh, when we're doing big prunes, we do fully defoliate, and then uh, so just so we can get in there and see stuff. Uh, but then we, we do a lot of our pruning in the winter, so they've lost leaves, which is nice. Uh, but yeah, if we're, especially if we've got a tree that's about ready to go into a pot, a bonsai pot, you know, we've been growing it out for a few years and it's about ready to go in. We'll fully defoliate it just to make sure there's nothing in there. It's structure wise that we need to correct before it gets its final pot and go in, you know. Oh, that's cool. That makes all kinds yeah. of sense. And, you know, it's the same with some of the other trees. We'll, we'll try to fully defoliate before we make big cuts on stuff just to make sure we got everything, you know. Yeah, but then like the Coralopsis, we got to be careful with them because they don't pull off very easily. You can strip them backwards sometimes, but yeah, those I would want to cut. And the Stewardia, same thing. It's definitely cut the Stewardia. Yeah. So yeah, we got to be careful with some things, but other things. Uh, but yeah, like I said, most of them are just falling off already, so I didn't catch them early enough this year um, to actually be cutting. So I was just mostly picking up off the ground and <laughs> grabbing big handfuls, you know. <laughs> Do you, uh, so I assume you stop fertilizing the deciduous this time of year. Do you continue fertilizing the conifers? Yeah, we'll do, the deciduous are probably pretty done. Uh, we did do a kind of a late, maybe a month ago, we did a, um, pellet. We, we usually oh. use, we usually use liquids here because it's so dry in the summer. Uh -huh. So the pellets don't really like break down the same, but, um, we did, we've been trying to do a, trying to get a little more into late fall and early spring. Um, so yeah, we did a slow, a slow release pellet maybe a month ago. And so that'll push us through. Um, I think Thanksgiving is about when we stop uh -huh. uh, everything, but kind of gets cold enough where nothing's metabolizing. But yeah, we did a, we did a big one about a month ago, which will push us through to Thanksgiving or so. Uh -huh. And I assume you can leave all your trees on the benches for now until you get some crazy cold or. How yeah, we pulled down a few of the littlest ones. Uh, it was 20, I think we got down to 26 and it's actually the two days, uh, Sunday night, uh, tomorrow night, we're getting uh, down to 26 again. So we'll pull the little ones down. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of little trees, but anything in the shoheen, small chuheen size, we'll pull down, uh -huh. get put away. But we'll just pull them down onto the rocks. I don't think we'll put anything in the greenhouse until, um, you know, it'll be, I think sometime after Thanksgiving before the first of December is when we, we pull all the trees for, back from the Japanese garden that we have uh, there on show. And then we'll pull stuff into the greenhouse that's delicate. 
Oh, so they just have no trees. You, you take all the trees over to the garden then in winter from. Morning. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I think Michael's, Michael's trying to get them to get a collection uh, that they can manage, but it's just too much to, it's just too much for their staff to manage through the winter, you know, in the event of a, a big storm or something. So we, we pull yeah. them off. Uh, we pull them off after Thanksgiving and then they go back early spring. Yeah, it's kind of a big ask to have someone take care of trees at that level all winter long. You yeah, want to make exactly. sure they're, you want to be pretty confident they're on top of their stuff. Yeah, it's just, you know, and they, I don't know, they're kind of high in the West Hills here. I don't know what the elevation change is, but it's probably only five or 600 feet. But it's amazing because they have their own like weather system up there. It'll be sleeting rain up there and Michael will come to the garden here and it's like sunny. It's so weird. <laughs> they just have so it's it's you know the weather's a little less predictable up there um so they yeah they come home so we're bringing them home next week and then they'll live here and then we'll yeah we'll clean out the greenhouses and get stuff packed in there pretty soon for the winter oh, cool and so that means that probably the next order of business is a lot of uh pruning and wiring yeah i've been trying to get through the maples since they're just now losing their leaves you know we have 10 or 12 days here to get all of them cut back. So I'm almost done with them. And then, and then it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of a wire uh, conifers, wire and shape conifers and, and prune them back. I've got a couple of azos that I've got to get through. Hmm. And then, yeah. And then kind of like balancing that with uh, we have these chochabai we've got to cut off, but we, you know, both the conifers and the chochabai, it's kind of, you know, we just try to get them done sometime in the winter. So we've, we we kind of have two or three months here where we can kind of go back and forth. And it's a, it's a nice time of year because uh, the, the work is, there's certain windows, but the windows are pretty big. You know, there's certain times like this, uh, like the maple cutting, you know, we have a really small window to cut those, you know, before they start bleeding again. Um, but the, the winter tends to be a pretty big, long open window where we can get stuff done. So it's kind of nice because, we have a huge list of work we have to get done, but it's not like, oh, we need this done by the 1st of June or anything, you know. It's not like decantling black pines or something where we have to be done by this date or we have to be done, you know. Yeah, it's so, great when you have that flexibility. And it's nice that your winter's not any colder than it is because it gives you just enough so the trees get dormancy yep. and they uh, can still be worked on the whole time. Right, exactly. Yep, yeah, we don't have a whole lot of risk of, you know, we do... If we do big bins on conifers, we'll greenhouse it. Uh, but for the most part, I think we can just, we just leave stuff back out on the gravel and it, it, it does fine. So. Oh, yeah, even wired. Of, yeah. Oh, that's cool. And yeah. do you do much wiring of deciduous? I know in general, the garden, you don't see a lot of wire on deciduous, but will you be putting any wire on deciduous at this time of year? Uh, not a whole lot. We do, uh, we do put wire on in the spring mostly here. So, so it's mostly after, the cutback now. After, yeah, most of the cutback. And then we will wire a little bit. Like uh, there was a huge sprout on the Coralopsis exactly where we needed it. Ooh. And so we'll wire that out. Um, but mostly what we are doing is wiring new growth in the spring. After after that big flush of first growth, you know, we'll decide if we want to wire it or, or cut it. And then we'll do the wiring then. But for the most part, we don't wire deciduous too much in the winter. I like that idea about the... Uh... That you get a shoot right where you want it. That's such a rare thing in bonsai. I know, I know. Yeah, it's this one tree has this hole, and it's like, you know, we're trying to grow the whole thing left, but it wants to grow right, you know. And so we've been cutting back and whatever. And now we have a shoot, you know. So now we're gonna finally get to wire that thing out and get it where we want it. So that's kind of nice. 
Well, one thing I'm curious about is since you're, how many months now into your apprenticeship are you? Oh boy. A year know. and a half or something? Yeah, something like that. Yep, yep. And so I'm curious, you'll be doing a lot of wiring this summer kind of, or winter. Um, like what are you working on in terms of your own relationship with styling trees? Like mm -hmm. are there some technical things or stylistic things that you that have been on your mind or that you really want to practice or just see what you can get out of the trees this winter? Yeah, I think, I think one thing I'm really working on and um, I think one thing I'm working on really is just the, the idea of like doing the job correctly, but also balancing time and energy. And I think that that's something probably that professionals have to deal with a lot more than hobbyists have to deal with where it's like, it's not that it's not that professionals are cutting corners, but, but seeing as professionals have, you know, so much more work to do and so much. So, so there's this line of like, okay, how finely do we wire this Azo? <laughs> you know, do we put 22 gauge oh, co gosh. copper on that thing, you know, or, or do you wire it? Do you set yourself up for the next, the next session to be right, you know? And I think that that's kind of the, that's the balance I'm trying to strike of like, okay, the first tree that I wired when I was here was two years ago and it was a hemlock. And I came once a week and wired this hemlock. And it was a pretty big forest. I mean, it's five and a half foot tall. It's a big tree, but I think it took me two and a half months of weekends <laughs> to wire that thing. You know, it's like, the poor thing it probably is not going to make it because half of it was pruned two and a half months ago and wired out and that you know so it's like <laughs> it just took so long and every time i came it's like i'm committed to getting this thing done but man i'm ready to move on to some other tree you know and we're just ready to <laughs> i'm ready to move on to another species uh, well, so but it's kind of like and then this the the last tree that i wired was like three hours and I had it wired out and it wasn't a big wire job. It had been wired before a couple of times, but, but it, it just struck me like, okay, there's, there's this. And I even, I even hate to say it like this good enough, you know, cause I, I don't, I don't want to tell people like, oh, we just do it good enough, you know, but, but it's kind of that feeling of like, we're setting the tree up for the next phase. We don't have to be finished today. Uh, we just want to improve the tree every time we touch it. And it's, it's one tree of nine that we have to get through. And so we're, we're doing the job, right. We're doing it correctly, but we're not, we're not obsessing over all of the little details, you know, does what criteria. Sense? Yeah, it does. Um, what criteria come to mind that help you decide whether or not you're going to go from 16 to 18 or 18 to 20 on some of these things? Well, a lot of it has to do with species, obviously, you know, we don't put any, we don't put any 20 on Ponderosa, you know, that kind of thing. So we just wire that out. And, you know, some of the limber pines, some of the pines, especially we don't, we don't wire out super finely, but then like the Azos and the hemlocks, they all really require that smaller uh, wire. But I think one thing that I've learned, like in the time that I've been here, because I didn't, um, I had only done bonsai for a year before I met Michael and Andrew. So I'm, I'm I don't have very many moons uh, under my mm -hmm. belt just in general, you know? So, so there's these like some things I'm learning in the yard here, which is nice because I think people would learn them eventually, but I'm having to learn them a lot faster. And one of those is like, okay, I look at this hemlock branch or this um, 
you know, hemlock is, it doesn't back bud very well or juniper. Let's call it juniper because I think everybody works with juniper. Let's look at this juniper branch. Well, when I first wired this tree, I wired it out finally to 20. And I said every little branchlet and every little tertiary. And then this last time I learned, okay, actually what, what, that, what happens then if the tree is already dense and I've wired everything out is that by the next growing season, it's become way too dense. Yeah. And then I watched both Michael and Andrew work and they're selectively cutting off the things that don't already look good. If it's pointing down, if it's drooping, if it, the foliage is not nice. So they're, they initially take off, you know, 50%. Uh, of course it's, you know, this tree is dense and well growing, but they're taking off, you know, some X percentage. And then they're wiring out just the things that are a problem after that, instead of like, my first concept was like, I have to save everything, all of these little, mm. you know, crotchy branches and droopy branches. And, and so I think that's where some of the efficiency has come like, okay, so if I have to cut out something anyway, because the tree will be too dense. And so if I make my choices wisely, then that's a lot less to wire. You know, if I'm, if I'm cutting off the problematic branches before I even pull the wire out, then, then it makes the wiring so much easier. Or if I'm, yeah, if I'm cutting out, um, all the density. It's just, it's just little things that I learn instead of like randomly cutting things off and then trying to struggle through figuring out how to wire everything. It's like, Oh, okay. If I'm selective and systematic about what gets cut off, then it's a lot less to wire. Um, and I think that's one of the hardest things to teach. I mean, you really put your finger on it when you mentioned the things that are already weak, that are already growing down, that are already crowded. Um, because on paper, that's really the only criteria we have for making those cuts, but it's that knowing where the balance point is of how much foliage you need to suggest the right shape of a right. pad, for instance, so you can feel free to cut the rest and then manipulate whatever you have remaining. Yeah. And then also just like looking at the tree as a whole and saying, you know, is the tree balanced? Uh, does the crown have a weakness? So maybe I've got to be more careful with the crown. I don't cut anything off of there, but I'm taking off some of the lower branches thinning, you know, just so things by the end of the work, they're either matched or it's even weaker on the bottom. So that the top can, you know, it's just like making these decisions about the, what the tree needs because you, you know, every tree you approach hardly are, you know, do we have like the perfect setup where we're just like rubber yeah. stamping. We're just, we're, we're constantly having to make these decisions about, you know, what does this tree specifically need? What's its species? You know, what, what history does it have? how did it respond last time to what we did to it? You know, that kind of thing. And that's even harder to convey to people is how to kind of read the tree to, yeah. or to keep that in mind. Cause you're right. Uh, trees naturally are going to put coarse, vigorous growth up near the top where you want it to be slow and fine. And they're going to have a bunch of weak branches below. And so even if you do everything perfectly, the tree's still trying to invest in the right. exact opposite branches that we're hoping for. Yeah. And the church of body do the opposite. You know, if you let them go for a couple oh, of years, gosh. they bifurcate and then they abandon that old shoot and they send out another one, you know, they, and so it's like, you know, knowing your difference between your bushes and your trees. And then also just even, you know, eventually the trees will stop doing the, we can, we can like the church of will stop sending out sprouts at the bottom. How do you get that to happen? <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, so it's funny because some of the older ones just don't do it anymore, which I'm really glad for. And I don't know if it's like they're finally to the ramification they need to be. They finally slowed down enough where they're not sending up a bunch of shoots, but it's just funny. It must be the different root systems or something or species. I don't know what it is, but the, 
some of the younger Chochabai just send up hundreds of these shoots and then some don't, you know, so. And it's constant all year long. Oh, all year long. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't matter. The so Chochabai annoying. are funny. I really like them. They're, they're kind of quirky little things. They, they don't really follow a whole lot of rules. They, you know, they yeah. flower, they'll, they'll lose their leaves in the summer. First time I saw them, I'm like, Oh my God, Michael, I think I'm killing them. You know, <laughs> all the Chochabai are losing their leaves. It's like, Oh no, they'll be back. You know, a couple of days later, his <laughs> these little buds are growing and the leaves are going. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's a weird one. You know, middle yeah. of August, shedding all of its leaves. Like, what in the world? Who are you? And so but, then that short amount of time later that they get their leaves for, then they lose them again right now. It's so yeah, hard. exactly. Yeah, they get a month of new growth and then they're dropping them now and they're flowering now. It's just like, you're such a weird plant. Yeah, but I noticed that they're they're more prone to be weak on the top and send out more and more of those lower shoots. And I find it's it's almost... you you can't go a full four weeks between cutting the lower shoots out of the ground because you'll be sunk if you wait that long. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 We watch, you know, every day I'm walking around cutting out those and especially on the older stuff, you know, we're, we pull off fruits and flowers, uh, especially on the oldest ones. Yeah. And then, yeah, watching for shoots. So that's a big, that's a big kind of daily task walking around, making sure the, the Irish knot moss is not growing everywhere. And the, (laughs) And the flowers aren't gr- turning into fruits on the chochabai. When you're working on wiring more mature trees, I'm curious, do you think about your own work from um, a less technical perspective or maybe more artistic perspective where you're trying to achieve certain effects in trees? Or um, do, do you ever think about it like that? Huh. Because you described perfectly kind of the basics of styling. Well, I'm going to cut these things, and I'm going to wire those, and... It's like, well, how are you wiring them? Or maybe a totally other way to look at it would be, you know, is there anything you see in the work of others that you would either like to emulate or incorporate in your own work? Or do you see a gap between where your wiring is and maybe where you'd want it to be? Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I think the thing that, um, and I, I, Michael and I have talked about some like goals that, that we want to get through before. Cause I'm done in July, first of July, I'm done. So this will be my last potting season, my last winter wiring season. And then I've got some spring and summer work. Uh, but I, I want to like fill in some of the gaps that I have. Uh, because we'll probably get into this later, but we, Michael and I initially settled on a two year program, which is much less than he would personally like out of an apprentice. But the, but since my goals are different and I, I don't necessarily want to refine trees. Uh, I just want to learn what a ref- I want to learn from him how to discern a refined tree or how to get to that point. Even if I can't necessarily get there myself, I want to see, I want to see what the Michaels of the world look for when they're looking for a product that they can grow into that. You know what I'm saying? Have you come up with an answer to that? Well, not really. That's, that's where I've got to, like, that's where some of the gaps in my knowledge are at this point. And that maybe brings us to the wiring thing is like, when we're working with Yamadori, we, and, and I kind of mentioned this already, like we typically try to focus on like, what do I need to do now to set the tree up to be successful in the future? And so, you know, we, and that comes back to like, we may not be wiring everything out to a 20 uh, gauge right at the beginning, or we may not be cutting off everything that absolutely needs to get cut off because the tree might need that to regrow the root system or whatever the, whatever the situation is, we may not be, it's, it's a much longer game than I think I was aware of 
Hmm. I mean, of course, you know, you talk about, okay, this tree is 50 years old, but this tree was a hundred years old or whatever. And it's been in, in the pot, you know, so, so, so obviously we know that it's a long game, but I think the things that I'm kind of like coming around to is like, okay, I don't need to finish the tree today. I just need to set the tree up to be ready for next spring. And then in next spring, I set the tree up to be ready for fall and in the fall, you know, and so the, not only does the tree take a long time to get to where it wants to be, but our process of doing it is over a long amount of time, you know, and that, I don't think that really like sunk in until I was here for a year. It's like, okay. Like, and even, even things like, okay, we have these trees to do. And if the window closes in the winter on styling this tree, like we just, we just have to cut our losses and we style it next year or we, we change our goals a little bit or whatever. Like we, it's, it's just such a fluid process. It's much less rigid than I, than I assumed it would be. And obviously we would have liked to do that work or we, but, but if something comes up, you know, it's different than, okay, if we don't cut, if we don't cut a black pine's candles off, then we've lost five years. Like that's a definite, we have to do that work. But then there's other stuff that's like, okay, it's unfortunate that we didn't get to that. Or, or we get in there, we defoliate, we see that something can't get done because, okay, we lost this branch. So maybe we need to put it in a box and we need to, we need to buy a few years. Like we can sort of punt that down the road a little bit and that's okay. Like that's just part of the development of the tree, you know? Mm-hmm. And so not only thinking of it as like, oh, okay, this is a long-term process, but like this is a lot of little iterations over a long-term you know, and that, I think that was, that's kind of the thing I need to like really sink in with. And so the wiring is, I feel like the wiring is that way. Like, okay, I don't, I don't have to wire the tree out all the way. I just wire it out so that it's set up to be ready to go when I have twice the ramification or when I have the kind of branching I need or whatever, you know. Which is such an abstract idea because when you're working with young things, you're typically only going to be keeping a very small amount of the branch that you're wiring. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and even, you know, even when we're wiring out, like I think, uh, I think Michael ran into this a lot as an apprentice himself. And and over the years, like you'll sometimes wire out a Yamadori or wire out a tree. And, and as you're shaping it, you realize you don't want this whole branch. So there goes a whole branch of wired work. And it's, it's painful, you know, because that was half an hour or an hour of wiring that you did and it's all just got cut off. But there's also like, there's just this sense of like, uh, it's a, it's a dynamic process, you know, it's not, it's not a static process. It's not something that just like can get done. And I think as a, as a hobbyist, I was, you know, it's a hobbyist for a year, but as a hobbyist, I just felt a need to like get the tree done. Like, Hmm. you know. I wanted a nice tree. And I think that that's, I think a lot of people that I've bumped into have talked about, you know, it's probably a good idea to have a good number of trees. I mean, we talked about this on the podcast already, but it's a, it's a good idea to have a good number of trees and have a, like different ages of trees. So you, just so you don't like work a tree to death, you know, like, Oh, now I'm going to repot it and then I'm going to wire it and then I'm going to cut it all. <laughs> it's like, no, you gotta, you gotta spread that out a little bit, you know, work on different trees and work on different stuff. So, it's kind of a different process to like, you know, the 500 trees we have in our yard are all on the track to finish and they're all going at a different rate and they're all going at a different, they're all at a different pace in that process. And so it's kind of like juggling all of that, like the development goals of these 500 trees or whatever, um, figuring out what, what to be done and where, you know, what, what kind of work needs to be done in each season. And that's, 
I suppose if you wanted to wrap up an apprenticeship in America, that was probably it. It was like, <laughs> I just trying to figure out, learn myself. And then also like try to keep these, tr these trees on their track, you know? Have you ever been shopping with Michael for young material? A little bit. Um, we've gone to Randy's, uh, Randy Knights to look at his Yamadori material. He and I, a uh, year ago, actually, we went up to Anton's place and that was Ooh. an amazing trip. I went up there and shopped with him and, but no, not a whole lot of young material, um, mostly just Yamadori material. It's hard when you don't get that hands-on experience figuring out what it, how to evaluate those younger things so you can make yeah. your mental notes about don't do this. Right, right. I think, I mean, Michael has mostly developed his own young stock here, either by cuttings or air layers or, and so we have a good amount of that in the yard. And, and so I feel like I've gotten that a little bit of like being able to look at this, you know, we have a dozen air layered maples, Japanese maples. And he says, you know, we we can talk through like, okay, here's what I did wrong with this one. Here's what I wish I would have done, you know? And so we can kind of evaluate those and sort of like rank those in a way. And so that's a little bit similar, but yeah, it'd be nice to do like to go to a large bonsai nursery. I mean, unfortunately that's just not something we have here. We've got, we've got um, bonsai Northwest in Seattle. Um, but, but that's really, we need to come to California, I think. Well, I don't know what you mean by California. We just don't have enough growers well. anywhere as far as I know. <laughs> Yeah, I guess we've been out to Telperion together before, also before before the tragic fire out there. Um, so we got to look at some stuff there. But yeah, just it's it's tough. It's tough to. Luckily, we have a good spread of ages here in the yard to be able to kind of do some internal evaluation. Are there some things you've noticed when you, whether with Michael or on your own, go to these nurseries? That are there some things that you know you definitely do want to do or do not want to do either to emulate some successes or avoid mm -hmm. some mistakes in growing? Yeah. I mean, I think the, I think the key that I really set out wanting to work with Michael on was just, just really like being able to put myself into his position and really seeing through his eyes. Like hmm. I, I think that one of the deficiencies in the in the market is that so so growing and and bonsai in general is like a good part of horticulture and then there's a good part of artistic right and it's kind of this odd mix of these two you know one's kind of a craft and one's kind of an art i, I don't like to spread those out in a hierarchy but in a in a horizontal you know we've got kind of two extremes in one sense you got to figure out how to keep the thing alive and thriving and in the other sense, you've got to figure out how to make it artistic. Uh, and I think that part of the issue is that um, that there's sort of two camps. There's like, there's the horticulture camp of people that like are really good at that. And then there's the, the artist artistry camp. People are good at that. But I think that there's, there's a sort of a lack of crossover between those two, like people that that know how to deal with the plant, keep it alive, make it thrive, but then set it up to be ready to be a pre bonsai, you know? And then and so on top, I, yeah, I was going to say on top of that, we've got such weird competing continuums of, I remember 30 years ago when I started, people would say, oh, well, bonsai takes a long time. So it doesn't really matter what I do now because it won't be a real tree for another 20 or 30 sure. years. 
Yeah. Whereas now we're so short term focused. It's like, doesn't matter what the stage of development or whether or not I collected it 10 minutes ago, let's just wire everything and we'll be done. Then we have a bonsai. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I think of the, of the people I like, um, the stuff I've seen, not only in person, but online, the, the other growers, um, you know, I see a lot of, um, a lot of material that's just, it may never get there. It's like, I, mm-hmm. there's kind of a perception about what, you know, like Trident Maples, everybody loves growing Trident Maples big. And so there's a lot of big trunks out there, but they, I just don't feel like they're grown in a way that they'll ever be anything, you know, that, and maybe they'll be something, but they're not, they're not going to be, they're like, it's, it's like the, the girth and the size was grown at the, at the expense of, of style or of something that's going to get set up. So back to that, but you know, back to what I've said a couple of times, like, what does it take to set the tree up for its next stage? And you know, what does that take? And I, you know, I'm still, still trying to figure all that stuff out myself, but, but like, how do I either get a roof base or how do I get a trunk or how do I get branching? And, you know, and one way to do it is, you know, some people um, have done this and people in the club here where you grow a tree extremely slowly in a pot over a very long time and you develop it. And there's some beautiful trees out there that are done that way. And then on the other hand, you've got people that, put the tree in the ground and grow it out quickly and then try to fix some of the inevitable problems that come with growing the tree in the ground. And so just kind of like two, two extreme ideas of thinking about how to develop trees and just trying to figure out somewhere in the middle, I feel like is where I want to land, you know? Yeah. You can't uh, realistically start a business with the Ann Spencer model. Right. I mean, absolutely beautiful trees. We have a few of her trees in our yard and they're just, I mean, they're just shocking to look at how beautiful they are, but you, yeah, right. You can't, you can't develop a business model around doing trees that way. And for those who don't know, this was a Portland area enthusiast who had just a fantastic collection that developed very slowly over a, over decades. And the people lucky enough to have some of those trees appreciate them for the character that you can really only build into a tree over um, many increments over long periods of time. Right. And kept in small pots and kept, you know, very, very meticulous record keeping on what everything was done. And yeah, beautiful trees, absolutely beautiful trees, but it's, you'd have to have hundreds of acres of little trees like that to be able to manage any kind of like profitability over time, you know? Well, one of the things you said actually really sticks out to me and it's, it's kind of a, it's almost a more helpful way of looking at a uh, way I've thought of it growing for a long time. As you said, in spring, I'm setting up for fall and in fall, I'm setting myself up for spring. And I think it's so much easier to explain to people or to determine for yourself, what is my goal over this next season period and really focus on that. And then when you get used to taking those individual steps that might provide the tools you need to start looking further out more chess game like and see several moves ahead to where that tree might be right right yeah and i think you and i've talked about this it's you know in some ways we sort of have to just shoot in the dark and then when we you know fast forward five years and then when we get there we realized okay this was the path that we should have taken with all of them but we didn't really know that in the beginning. So we kind of need to, we kind of need to have three or four running tracks at the same time of, 
okay, we're going to try, you know, we're going to try this way of doing it, or we're going to try this soil and this soil, you know, just, just kind of like doing some trialing. I think that as a, as a uh, collective, the growing, growing bonsai in America is pretty young. And so we just don't have a whole lot of, we don't have a whole lot of established norms about, okay, you do it this way. You know, if you're growing black pines, you do it this way and then you do it that way. And of course we can lean on the Japanese um, or other, other cultures that have been doing this longer than we have. But, but in some ways we kind of have to do our own because just because of our different climates or whatever. So, yeah. So we kind of have to like play with like, I'm going to do three different ways. I'm just going to push them down the track. And in five years, I will have known what, what worked the best. And then hopefully even before the five years is over, I can begin to make adjustments to the way I'm doing that so that, so that I'm not arriving at the train station with nothing (laughs) in my hands, you know? Yeah. And that's what I call a five-year lesson. And if only all of the lessons I've learned only took five years, but I agree. There's not enough time to make all of your lessons parallel. Well, I'm just going to do it this way. And then at the end of 20 years, then I'll try some other way. Right, right. (laughs) You're just really limiting what you can accomplish unless you've got 10 friends who are each taking 10 different paths. But exactly. Yeah. And you know, there's, there's other people that are doing things so we can, we can hopefully, you know, be conversing about what, you know, what other people are doing, what's working for them. But, but, you know, even you and I have fairly similar, um, we have fairly similar weather, I think, fairly similar growing conditions, but mm-hmm. but we're even different. You know, I think we get more rain than you do. You get less cold than we do. So, so you know, even as much as we can be talking about stuff, we're also kind of talking about totally different, totally different areas of the country, totally different, you know, growing conditions. So, yeah, it's true. Then a one day drive, I could probably have just <laughs> completely radically different um, weather patterns. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Exactly. Just knowing that uh, at the end of a day, I could either be at your house or in Mexico or, you know, up at 9,000 feet in the Sierra Nevada, let alone uh-huh. Death Valley. Right. There's Death Valley, exactly. exactly. That, that's too big a continuum right there. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I like that idea. I'm going to think about that, you know, maybe write more about how to identify what that next goal is or what that next step is and do it. What I've often said is it's so great when you've got a one-year-old tree, you've got 12 months to figure out how to work on a two-year-old tree. Yeah, right, right, right. It sounds so easy. And honestly, (laughs) it is because you literally do have 12 months to figure out what to do with a two-year-old tree. And there's no year in a tree's life that's any different. If someone gives you a 14-year-old tree, you've got a year to learn what to do with a 15-year-old tree. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think it's nice. Um, you know, one of the things I've seen in the yard here and then I, you know, I've started my own, uh, started some of my own seedlings and cuttings and, and, uh, it's nice to have like, okay, you, you walk out in the backyard and I have a 50 year old tree and I have a 48 year old tree and I've got a 46 year old tree, <laughs> you know, like the Chochabai. It's so nice to have two or three imported trees that, that came from Japan that were grown in Japan and that are finished trees that that if i'm stumped i can i can sometimes go out and stare at them and figure it out you know and so it's it's nice like to not only have like i not not only have 12 months to figure out what to do with a 15 year old tree when it's 14 but i can i can go out in the yard and i can kind of look at what a 15 year old tree might look like and i can learn some lessons like okay when it was 14 i should have done this so i'm going to take this 14 year old and i'm going to try different something or I'm going to do, you know, whatever the deal is. So 
it's kind of nice to have those different ages. Um, and with my own, with my own stock, I'm starting to see that a little bit cause I've got, got a couple years now, oh, cool. but it'd be nice as I get into older stuff to be able to kind of reevaluate behind, you know, it's one size kind of an open book test that way. Right. <laughs> exactly. I, um, I've always thought that one of the many benefits of doing an apprenticeship is that your hands are physically on great trees and you kind mm -hmm. of can't help, but take note of how is this put together? How has this changed over time? And if you're working in a garden that deals with different species and different stages of development, you're going to get a pretty broad experience and that there's kind of no shortcut to that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's so nice to see like, We've got a good mix in this yard of propagated trees. Even a lot of the conifers are propagated. Um, and then we've got wild trees right next to it. So we have these two shore pines um, that really look fairly similar. Uh, you can tell which one is wild, but one was grown at Telperion and one was grown, uh, it was grown in the wild. So it was collected and they have similar bins. They have similar tilts. Hmm. They have similar, you know, the, obviously the, the one in the, you know, the one from the wild is, is a lot older bark and a lot craggier in a way. But but like, it's just nice to like look at these trees next to each other and, and uh, you know, be able to make some comparison notes of like, okay, if, if my goal is to create something that looks like it came from the wild, it's just so nice to be able to study trees that were grown in the wild, you know? Yeah, exactly. And so I've often, like, I'll often be bending up uh, black pines and I'll pull my stool up next to the, you know, next to the pines in the yard and I'll just stare at the pines and then kind of like try to try to imagine what it would, you know, what would make that trunk line look <laughs> like that, it, you know, if I'm working on it right now, you know, and so it's kind of fun to like be able to walk around and look and think, Oh wow, that is really fascinating how, how nature did that movement or how, how this thing happened, you know, what just kind of imagine what these, how these movements were created and then kind of pushing that into my own work as I'm trying to trying to create that stuff myself, you know. Do you do much studying of books or online for images of things you like? Yeah, the Kokafu. We have the full collection of Kokafu, and I spend a lot of time digging through there. Um, extremely helpful. I haven't found a whole lot of great uh, online resources. There's a couple of Japanese blogs that I follow, especially for Shohin, um, that are just kind of eye candy. Uh, <laughs> just fun to look at. And one of them, especially um, the person is really good at like uh, the, the English translation is terrible. So I can't really get for anything from that, but just from the photos um, you can follow trees over time. So you can look back through the life of this, uh, this uh, trident maple or whatever it is, you know, and you can kind of see the, how the development worked and what they did to create the, what they're working on, you know? And so it's kind of nice uh, to be able to look back through the history and see, because I think that's the most valuable is it's fun to look at a final product like the Kokovu book, but, but I think it's almost more valuable to be able to dig back through the diary and see like, okay, they, they grew out this huge, this huge branch and they grew it out solely for the purpose of making it a gin, you know, or they grew it out to, you know, give girth to the trunk or whatever it is, you know? And so seeing that, uh, seeing that set up again, that, that sacrifice for what's, what the tree needs the next time around. It's nice yeah. to see. 
there was a, an exhibit in Japan where they started putting up those old diary photos up on a wall and you could actually see the development of trees over, you know, mm. 10, 15, 25 years. And it was really, really neat to see. And then the trees actually right there. So the punchline is, and here it is. Oh yeah. Fun. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, I even love looking at that in our, in our own yard, you know, I can go back through Michael's blog um, and mm, yeah, just kind of see when the tree came in and what, you know, what development was, has happened between then and now it's kind of shocking sometimes like, Oh my gosh, that was, it really wasn't all that many years ago that this thing looked like it was on the edge of death. And then here <laughs> it is like, I'm having to cut half of the foliage off because it's growing too wildly. Now it's growing too crazy. And, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Pretty wild. Well, what are you excited to start in the spring? Like what, um, you know, we get to start a new batch of trees every year. What are you kind of fired up about? send it out there. Yeah. So I'm working on black pines a lot. Um, I've got actually got a grow room going in the garage and I'm learning from a couple of online people, um, just kind of hydroponic growing of black pines. And the great thing about it is that we're, I'm growing under grow lights in a grow tent with, uh, injecting CO2, like just like pot growers do it. And so the, the turnaround time is a little faster because I'm getting, two years of growth out of a year of tent time. So um, I can kind of see what's happening a little bit faster than just growing outside, you know? Well, that's so be cost I'm, effective. You think? I think so. I think so. I, I'm still trying to figure that out, but I, I think it will be. And our, the farm, the farm that we're going into has solar. Um, we're going to put in a massive solar array. So I think, I think the electricity will be, I think it'll be economical, but I've still got to figure that out. Hmm, yeah, That's one of the things of like, you know, and, and you know, that, that, that's just such a different game than I play here where it's like, what's my cost benefit analysis? You know, what's the, I have to figure out my inputs. I got to figure out my, and I've got to turn trees around. You know, that's, that's the whole thing with, with me going forward is I'm going to have to figure out how to turn trees around. I can't, I can't just, keep and maintain a beautiful collection. I, I'm not going to rely on teaching my, my, my goal and income is going to come from selling trees. So I've got to figure out how to do that economically. I've got to figure out how to do that. Um, you know, uh, the economy of motion and all of that, you know, so that's going to be really interesting. So I don't know. I don't know if the grow room stuff is going to be efficient um, as far as cost goes, but we'll see. So on that same track, what have you thought about what your horizon is for how, old a tree you want to be releasing like is mm. this a two-year horizon a five-year horizon a 10-year horizon or are you thinking over quite a broad range for the pines say yeah i think quite a broad range especially to begin with because uh i mean i think ideally i'm looking for probably five to seven years is kind of my ah. release them into the wild at that age um but if I think about what the heck I'm going to do for five to seven years while I get my five to seven year trees going, you know, <laughs> I've got to, I think it'll probably be a fade in of like the first year is going to be obviously all one year trees. And then the second year is going to be mostly one year trees and some two year trees. And the third year is going to be mostly three, you know, and then I'm eventually going to, once I have five year old trees, I'm going to eventually fade out. Cause I just don't, I enjoy starting trees, but I don't think, I don't think that's where I'm going to end up. You know, that's not where my training is. Uh, that was, you know, that was kind of the whole thing with, with working here is like, I want to learn, I want to learn how to take a two year old tree and turn it into something that Michael would want to work on. Um, 
you know, I don't necessarily, I mean, I love cutting and propagating. That's how I, hmm. I really enjoy doing that. So nice. I probably will turn around some really young stuff just because it's hard to find some of that stuff. But for the most part, I don't want to just kick it out into the wild when it's nine months old and has a little bit of root on it. I want to figure out how to set it up for someone so that it's, you know, it's a puzzle that they can solve, but it's a puzzle that could be solved in a way that makes a really nice plant. Yeah. And that's something that's lost. I don't know that growers or buyers, and I include myself in both of those categories, have a good sense of what what the criteria should be at such early stages of development. All we know is more is better. And right, that doesn't right. necessarily serve us really well because more growth typically means bigger inner nodes. Um, you know, more roots yeah. means more stuff that we have to prune away um, or that it won't fit in a pot. And so it's, uh, it's, I think it's going to take education on all of our parts to figure out some of those puzzles. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. I'm wondering, are you looking to do a lot of deciduous as well? Yeah, I'm going to have a healthy mix of them. I think um, I, you know, obviously being in the yard for over a year with Andrew has influenced me greatly towards deciduous stuff. So I'm going to def- definitely do deciduous. Um, but I, yeah, I, I think it'll probably be 50, 50 as oh, far wow. as like actual plants. It'll be probably half and half. That'd be fantastic. That That's a lot of deciduous. Let me know if you figure them out by the way. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sure. No, I, Andrew luckily is like five years ahead of me on that stuff. So I'll be leaning heavily on him. <laughs> Exactly. No, that'll be great. I look forward to seeing all that come together. He'll have almost a year in the yard before I move out in his new place. It's getting set up this week. And so he'll have almost a year to figure out some stuff uh, that I can hopefully, you know, work on. And then obviously he's been at it a lot longer than I have. So yeah, I think I'll probably find myself in this neighborhood uh, quite often because he and Michael are just a couple of blocks away from each other. So I think I'll find myself in this neighborhood a lot, just continuing my education. And I mean, I think we talked a little bit about this, um, but I, I kind of, so I, 12 years before I did this, I was, I owned a restaurant uh, and did Woodfart pizza and people, I always bristled when people said I was a chef because I wasn't really a chef. You know, that's, that's a term that I, it's kind of like calling someone a doctor when they don't have a doctorate or whatever, you know, it's like that. That's a term that I reserve for people that deserve that term. And so I would always just say I'm a business owner or I'm a cook or whatever, like call me something other than a chef because a chef has that title that everybody can make assumptions around. Yeah. And so I think in that same vein, uh, the apprentice sort of bristles a little bit. I bristle at that because I think about, you know, the apprenticeships, that I read stories about, I hear from Michael, the, the Japanese traditional Japanese apprenticeships. I'm not really following that. I don't deserve that title in a way because I'm not really, I don't really, I'm not really following that same track. Um, and so obviously I'm dedicating some time to this yard. I'm dedicating time to Michael. I'm learning. I mean, in the pure word of an apprentice, I, I'm apprenticing under Michael obviously, but it's kind of interesting because I don't think that the, I don't think that my life here in this yard looks almost anything like a Japanese apprentice's life in Japan. And obviously I don't really know what that looks like. I haven't experienced that myself either, but just from the stories I've heard, it seems like a much different uh, relationship between Michael and I, especially. 
um, in this yard versus what people experience in Japan. So. Well, then we'll call you an intern. An intern. Okay. I'll take that. I'll take intern. <laughs> an internist. Um, have there been any big surprises for either you or your family, you know, since you started? Um, is it kind of what you thought it would be or is, have there been any, or have you found the focus being totally different than any of you would have guessed? No, I think, uh, I think we had a good, good conversations up front uh, with Michael and we, I think we came into it having a pretty good idea of what was going on. Uh, we were in a weird situation. Um, we own a house across town and then just with the housing situation here at the yard, I, I did three months of commuting before we moved. And mm -hmm. so we kind of were able to fix some of those kinks like before we dove in all the way, I think. And, and yeah, we just super open communication from the beginning about what the expectations were. And I mean, I think probably if I, if I said I'm learned anything or was shocked by anything is how much these things take to water. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the, in the heat of the summer, cause, cause the first summer I was here, it was three months of commuting and Andrew was still in his apprenticeship. So at five o'clock, you know, I'm punching out like a union man, getting on my bike and biking home an hour and enjoying my life, you know. And mm -hmm. and then I, this summer I'm living here and realizing, oh, we, we're watering until dark or after dark sometimes, like on these super hot nights. Like we're out there, you know, first thing in the morning before I would have gotten here when I was commuting and way after I left. And then, then you know, the weekends aren't really weekends because you got to water six times, which takes essentially the whole day. And, you know, these trees need to get done for the clients. So we're working into the, you know, so it's just these things I didn't really, I, I was privileged to not be able to have to engage mm -hmm. in because Andrew was still an apprentice, you know, and I was just commuting. Yeah. But, but I think if there was anything that's like, oh, I didn't really get that. Yeah. Okay. Do you have to water the trees all the time? Like all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, and it's hard to, overstate the disruption of interruptions and that's every visitor to the garden that's right, every class right. that's taught that's every supply you need to go buy it's really surprising how all that adds up it's like the interruptions are going to happen the watering is going to happen fertilizing yeah, and spraying yep. is going to happen and what we think of as bonsai is what happens in the gaps between those things exactly yep yeah exactly yeah, you know, uh, COVID has really destroyed all of our lives and some people more than others, but it's kind of been nice in the yard here because we don't have visitors. And so there's this, you know, pomp and circumstance that, that doesn't have to happen. And there's not like, I love, I love talking to people. I love talking to people about what we do and enter, entertaining people and engaging with people. But there's, there's just an amount of work that doesn't get done when we do that. And so that work has yeah. to be done some other time. So it's sort of been nice to have you know, Michael and Andrew are both around a lot more because they're not traveling as much. And so there's extra hands in the yard and we don't have visitors. We don't have classes to prepare for in, in real life. And so, yeah, it's just a kind of a, kind of a nice uh, difference around here to be able to kind of get some stuff done. I bet it sounds like it. Yeah. Well, what's on your to-do list between now and graduation day? That's not that far out. Yeah, it's not. I, I was talking to Michael a couple of days ago. We, he and I need to just uh, work out a schedule here because I'd like, I, there's some still some things I'd, I want to focus on. Um, we didn't get to much air layering this last year. I've done it a little myself, but I want to do a good amount of air layering, uh, deciduous mostly. Uh, just want to try to figure that out because I think that's going to be one of the keys to develop, 
developing, especially Shoheen, is I think uh, really nailing down air layering. Um, I've done a good amount of grafting, and I really, I really love grafting conifers, especially junipers. Nice. Uh, but I want to just make that a little more systematic. You know, I want to figure out, we did a little bit of different time uh, grafting this year. And so by spring, we should, we should see what was the most successful, you know. Uh, but I want to do a little bit more of that just to kind of nail down. Um, Andrew and I are both hoping to, to graft some uh, Yamadori, especially oh. some Rockies, uh, graft them over to uh, Itoagawa's. And so I just want to figure out like, you know, what is the best grafting style? What is the best grafting tape? What is the best, you know, timing, aftercare, all of these things. Because, you know, I think aftercare is probably one of the things that grafts die in more than even technique, I think. It's just aftercare yeah. and, and timing. Um, so I really want to nail that down, you know, really be systematic about starting a grafting project every two weeks, you know, all through the summer and just see like what really comes out the best. Um, cause we had some different successes this year and I think it probably had to do with that. And so, yeah, just kind of going through that. Um, did you do a lot of grafting in summer? We did. Yeah. We do oh, a lot wow. of our juniper, juniper grafting in summer. And so we, uh, we actually grafted all the way up to nine, uh, September. Huh. So I think we mostly grafted in June, July, but then I grafted all the way up into September, um, it just kind of like seeing like, okay, what's going to work, you know, what's going to, and uh, you know, if we can obviously science, scientifically make a hypothesis, the ones in September did nothing. They're just sitting there, you know, they're just waiting till spring. But uh, in the, in the words of our good friend, Gary Wood, if it's not, if it's not dead, it's alive. So we're going <laughs> to, we're going to hope yeah. it into next spring, you know. I know uh, there's kind of a bell shaped curve for grafting in winter around here where, it start your odds get better in December, get best maybe at the very end of the year, beginning of January, and then they start dropping off after about a month. Sure. So it's, you can kind of you can graft whenever, but your odds are going to reflect the the calendar a little bit. Right. Yeah, and it's kind of the same with the uh, the propagating. You know, I'm I'm going to try to do a lot more propagating at different times of the year. You know, obviously there's some scientific research out there, the propagating books and stuff, um, but I just want to like really nail down like. Okay, if if ninety five percent of the juniper grafts or propagations are going to take, I want to know exactly what what it is that creates that. You know what it is that is going to give me that because it just doesn't look good to do propagations or air layers if you're you know if you've got a sixty percent failure rate or something. You know. <laughs> yeah, and so for things like cuttings, timing can matter unless you've completely controlled your environment, in which case you can propagate all day long. What right, I found right, right, is right. that. In general, you can do most kinds of propagation. Well, I should say seed and cutting all year long, but they it might not be the most effective times to do it. Like you, because of when you're starting things and how big a tree is in a certain season, you're not going to get the growth benefit that if you're on a different program. And so I know some yeah, exactly. years, because I've started seeds in almost every month of the year and you just find out that, yeah, some of them are way, way smaller after 12 months than they would be had I started mm. at some other time. Sure. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, with here, we're the time we're pruning mature trees doesn't necessarily correlate with the time that we ideally are taking cuttings. <laughs> and so, you know, it's like, okay, can I make this cutting work? We just cut a beautiful azalea. It's probably not the best time to do cuttings on azaleas, mm -hmm. but we only have one in the yard. And so I want to get cuttings off of this thing. And so how do I work to make these cuttings survive? 
so they're in my grow tent um, and just like hope that I can make them go because we only have one and I really want to, I want to really want cuttings from it, but we, we cut it this time of year. And so, you know, it's little things like that. Like maybe the goals of the propagating doesn't necessarily line up with the goals of the yard. Yeah. Um, well, for Azalea specifically, if you can provide 85 degrees with 95% humidity, they will all take. All take. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm hoping for. I've got them in the grow tent and that's about what my conditions are. So. Yeah, then I expect they'll they're they're already growing. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. Yeah, it's a beautiful little kokensai that Michael has for uh it's an accent on an azo. Oh. A little a little mountain azalea. It's a beautiful little thing and it's got tiny little leaves and it it probably isn't going to make much of a tree itself, but it's a beautiful like accent. Um, you know, it's got some beautiful beautiful little uh things about it that I really like. That sounds cool. Have you uh, squirreled away stock plants for taking cuttings a little bit yeah i um i mean michael is completely gracious to let me have cuttings from here so i've been just everything that gets cut i'm sticking um so almost nothing goes into the garbage pile um and so i yeah i've been able to do that and then um i also got some uh some trees from telperion they were gracious in in offering andrew and i some stock plants from after their tragic disaster and so I've got some stock plants put away from that. And that that's where, you know, I, I mentioned to them, it's like a, you know, Phoenix rising from the ashes. It's going to be, it's going to be the plants that I am using to do cuttings and stylings and stuff on, you know, I'm not, I'm not planning on turning those trees around and selling them. I'm going to, I'm going to use them as mother plants, you know, stock. Sure, that's, that's really important. If you can find some trees with good genetics and then, uh, get them in the ground or in a huge container. So right. you have as many cuttings as you want to be able to strike that. Uh, yeah. And you know, happy. I think, I think that's also, I'm going to continue coming, you know, because like uh, the Chochabai, Michael's got a lot and then cut three times a year. We cut three times a year here for those. And so I told him like, you know, if you wouldn't mind me coming and helping during that week long, three times a year, I'll come out and cut and take cuttings, you know, just, just because I don't have the volume of, of, stock plants on those yet. So, you know, I think I'll continue to engage with he and Michael both. I mean, with he and Andrew both about uh, helping out in their yards in order to take materials. And Andrew is a little more, he, he's buying plants. He's, he's traveling all over getting stuff. He's looking for his own stock and his own supply. And I, you know, I, I think I can really piggyback on the work he's doing to try to find, you know, that, that stock plant and then take cuttings of it. You know, he's got some pomegranates that he just got and it'd be nice to like build a stock with him, um, you know, at the same time. That makes all kinds of sense. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I just say, if exciting. you find something nice, you find something nice, buy two of them. Like, <laughs> you know, buy 10 of them. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Whatever. It's crazy. Well, that sounds awesome. I'm excited for there to be some more material available uh, available in the not too distant future. And it sounds like that's not too far off since you'll be kicking things off as soon as the middle of next year. Yeah, I hope so. Um, I hope so. I'm, I probably will take a year. So it'll be, you know, a year and a half from now, but I, I think that I'm going to start spitting stuff out. That's my hope. And Will there Just be the, much build out that you have to do when you uh, first start? Not a whole lot. A wow. friend of mine is, he bought some property out of town. It's about halfway between here and the coast. So it's beautiful right in the coastal mountain range. Nice. And it's 45 minutes from Michael's house and 45 minutes to the beach. So we're perfectly situated right on the edge of the mountains. And 
he's putting in a huge greenhouse and huge infrastructure for a vegetable farm. And I'm just going to beg, borrow and steal little corners of workshops and, hmm. and greenhouses and that sort of thing for now. And so there's not going to be a whole lot of uh, build out for a while, I'll just kind of organically build it out over time as I have need. So they're putting in a hundred foot greenhouse and they only need 30 foot of it themselves. So I'm going to take half of it for now. Nice. Um, and then, and then as they need more of it, I'll build out another greenhouse for myself. So, you know, they're going to organically grow over the next four or five years to, to more acreage. And they have 40 acres. Wow. And then I'm just going to kind of do the same thing, grow slowly over that time. So we'll eventually need to put in a couple other greenhouses or low hoops or work workshop spaces. But for now there's plenty of infrastructure on the farm. So that's great. How long have they yeah, been Yeah, it'd be kind of nice because, you know, they've got, uh, they're doing organic veggie and they're super excited about it. There's going to be two couples living out there doing veggies. And so they're, you know, we're obviously going to be growing different things, but there'll be a, uh, there'll be some like symbiotic relationships between the way we're doing things. And, you know, if they need to be gone for the weekend, I can water their starts and vice versa. So hopefully we can have some, you know, some back and forth. that's really uh, good for, good for all of us working out there. Oh, that's so cool. That sounds yeah, really maybe, fun. And maybe one day we'll be able to get all together and have conferences and sales and stuff again. I don't know. Because I think that's probably the missing piece is I just don't know how I'm going to sell. Um, you know, I, I'm not in love with the idea of shipping all over the country, but, um, you know, obviously going to have to do some of that because I can't expect everyone to come here. But at the same time, like, you know, it's just, uh, that's one of the business things. It's not quite set yet. Like how much am I going to, am I going to make this like a, a niche local thing that, that I'm going to sort of like ask people to come to, or how much am I going to just advertise on eBay and sell things everywhere and anywhere? You know, it's, that's just kind of like, okay, I got to figure that one out. You know, obviously in the beginning, I'm probably going to have to sell more widely, but then maybe eventually I can shrink down and kind of expect people to come to me, you know, but yeah, apart from what hobbyists are looking for, I know that pretty much every club convention and other bonsai event in the country is looking for workshop material. And it sounds like the stuff you're growing is going to be perfect for right. workshops. And so I know there's going to be need in pretty much every corner of the country. Uh, the big question, like you say, is um, what are the most effective ways for you to move that stuff? Whether you're sending shipments or cars to various parts of the country on different occasions or right. whether you're doing that one by one in boxes you know, that's, that can be TBD. Right, right, right. And, you know, when's that, when is that all going to happen again, you know, with COVID and, and even like, you know, I don't think they even have a conference set up on the West coast, even before COVID, I don't think they had plans for something. So, you know, there's just uh, some energy that'll have to be recreated once we all come out of this. Yeah. I know if you're, uh, if you're not afraid to drive over the California border, I know they're they're still thinking about having a big, uh, the normal convention next fall. And then, you know, every year they do one in California. And so yeah, pretty good sized event. So, and then Portland has a good sized event. So of course you can always piggyback on Portland. You've got the Pacific Northwest up in Seattle. So a lot of great organizations in your neck of the woods. Fortunately. Right, right, right. Yeah. Fortunately, definitely. And it's a good growing location. You know, there's a couple of great growing locations in the country and, this is, you know, the one, That's of the one of them. <laughs> this is one of them, you know, it's one of the biggest nursery uh, wholesale areas in the country. So it kind of makes sense to be here. Well, cool. Well, it, does anything else come to mind that you want to uh, 
put in our ears before we let you go and get on with the day and go water. <laughs> right, right. No, it's actually raining. I'm looking out the window right oh, now. Wow. It's pouring rain. The sun actually came out. So I, what do they call that when the sun is shining and it's raining? Anyway, it's uh, doing yeah. that right now. So neat. Um, and it's 45 degrees. So I don't think nothing, I don't think anything's going to need a whole lot of attention today, but <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So break. what do you do? What does your apprenticeship do then when you've got this, a bunch of wet, cold trees outside? Mm, yeah. So, yeah. So right now I'm working on, um, I got a couple of azos I think that are probably coming wow. next. I got to get them dried off though. So I made that mistake. See, I should have, I should have gone in and dried them in the studio before I talked to you so that they'd be ready to work after. But Azo is one that you want to keep wet while you're working on it. So it doesn't shed needles. See, this is, this is so crazy. It's like some, some what you want to keep dry so they don't get diseases, but Azo is one that you want to keep misting so that you don't lose needles. And so it might be perfect. I'll pull in the wet Azo and work on it when I get done here. Sounds perfect. Sounds like a nice way to spend the afternoon. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, cool. Well, thanks so much for chatting. Uh, we'll do it again before too long. Okay. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Jonas. Awesome. Thanks, John. The music on today's podcast was brought to you by the fine folks at Blue Dot Sessions. Check them out at www.sessions.blue.